From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. Welcome everybody to another edition of Are You Not Entertained? Joining me as always to entertain you, no doubt, is the man himself, Roger Mitchell. Hi mate. Hi Grant, how are you doing mate? Good to see you. I'm doing very well. Yeah, you, you're looking very bohemian there at the end of your holiday with your open uh, Yeah, I had a little bit here. of a holiday down in Calabria, chill out. Yeah, it was lovely. It's, uh, it's a beautiful part of the world, you know, just on the tour there beside Sicily. It's... Um, yeah. It's great, just great, great place to chill out. It was, it was fantastic. Well, you're looking, you're looking very, very well, mate. Thank you. Well, mate, uh, goal on goal. I think yeah, both of a long time. It's been favorite, a long time. Part, favorite part of the week. It's been a while. Yeah, it's yeah. been a while. Um, lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. And yeah. as always, I'm going to be uh, the perfect English gentleman. I'm going to let you go first. What do you got for me this week? Um, well, you know what I've got. I was thinking. I was, I was as I was kind of like relaxing over the, the last couple of weeks and I was thinking about all the various things I was going to bring up and as always I try and find a kind of like umbrella theme and you gave it to me Grant you gave it to me with your newsletter where you know uh. you yeah you um you know it's called Mice and Men and it talked a little bit about uh, well anyway, I'm going to let you t- uh, give me a little bit of an introduction but it brought me into the whole world of where we are today in 2021 celebrity influencers to set up the specific examples I'm going to give, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were discussing in that newsletter? Yeah, well, well, I, it was. Um, I was talking about uh, uh, actually something one of your uh, your forebears, uh, Alexander Fraser Teitler, said back in uh, what about three hundred years ago now, Rog, talking about how a democracy can only last as long and, um, until the public realizes that they can vote themselves money out of the public coffers, and, and at that point. Every democracy is doomed, and he, you know, he he spent a lot of time criticizing democracies and saying that they had an average lifespan of two hundred years. Um, and you know, the parallel to that that I was running in was an experiment done back in the nineteen sixties by a guy called John Calhoun at uh, in Poolsville, Maryland, not far from where I am right now, funnily enough, where he created a, basically a perfect environment for a, a group of mice, eight mice, gave them everything they needed. They didn't need to work. They had all the food they could ever need, all the water, they had all the space they wanted, all the nesting materials. So they basically was a society where everything was catered for by higher power, um, which is great, you know, and, and, and the parallels with today with the amount yeah. of stimulus being given to people and benefits and God knows what, a talk of universal basic income, et cetera. Um, and you, you know, you kind of look at the the mouse society to see what happens, and it, you know, it didn't end well. It ended in it ended in cannibalism and extinction. So uh, you know, it, it's it it was a remarkable story, a remarkable experiment, and it and it fit quite well out the times we're living in, unfortunately, Roger. Well, one of the things that struck my, struck me about that was um, there was a, as as the society kind of like fragments. There's a part of them that become what I would consider the parallel was with influencers today. You know, yeah. and 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 you know the the the, take, the 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 way you brought all that together was really fascinating. So, like one of the two of the things I wanted to bring up today was um, my old friends at Barstool. You know, um, yes, I, I'd like to think that um, I've probably been on this before everybody else, uh, uh, including yourself, and taken a lot of heat. 
Oh, definitely stop. before me. Yeah. Definitely. And, before. you know, there was this wonderful uh, video this week where, uh, I don't know if Sean's got it, but where the um, two, two old gentlemen from the Golf Channel are utterly perplexed about how they'd seen this video of Phil, you know, on yes. the tee box with Riggs. And they're saying, well, it seems these days that golf revolves around this influencer social media chap called yeah. Riggs. And look, you know, that kind of like encapsulated for me a little bit about how I see the sports industry, old media, um, old governing bodies, old uh, executives, just, you know, scratching their heads as the world changes beneath their feet. And I, and, I, and I was thinking about that. And then you think, well, we, Barstool, when we started talking about it two years ago, it was this kind of like really edgy, miso misogynist, sexist kind of like um, media company that, yes, it had some success, but everybody really thought it was just truly awful. And now they're like, they're bidding for rights. They're going to stream a, a lot of like live events. Um, Dave Portnoy is playing um, Brooks in a charity golf match. They are commenting on Jake Paul fight. Uh, Logan Paul's going to be, you know, you know what I mean. The whole theme is yeah. in there now, and it's just picking up pace. And and I don't think anybody can deny Grant now that Barstool probably single handedly, you may disagree with this, has has completely reignited the sports of uh, golf and boxing. And, and and you know, I think it reflects what you were saying in your newsletter. No, I think it's definitely it's definitely done a lot for golf. Boxing, I'm not so sure about. Uh, but with, with golf, you know, the interesting thing about golf is on the on the on the TV, it's such a polite, staid sport with you know gentle applause and manners. And but anyone that plays golf out the listing will know when you get on the golf course with your buddies, it's a free for all. And and the amount of abuse and heckling and stuff that goes on. It's it's a great game for that in and amongst your your foursome. You know, so there are definitely two golfs, and I think what Barstool's done is managed to bridge that gap and brought the kind of golf that the average Saturday golfer is used to in his foursome with the you know the barracking and making fun of each other and you know, laughing at mistakes. And they've managed to kind of transpose that onto the fan experience of of tour golf, which um, is great. Now, you know, when I look at this stuff, Rog, I, the, the thing that springs to mind and I don't know if this is on the same trajectory but if you think back to the 90s in the UK certainly uh, 80s yeah 90s I guess and all the lads mags you know um, all the kind of uh, FHM and loaded mm. and all these kind of things which were to me a print version of what Barstool is doing right it was it was making the game a bit more blokey and, and I'm I'm using that sexist term mm -hmm. um deliberately because that's what the 90s mags did absolutely load in fhm and, the, and, the, and their ilk were very much aimed at guys and try to make the that culture um an appeal to young guys and you know sport has this reputation for being geared towards young guys that's really it has been its demographic until the last decade maybe when women's sports has has really pushed through to the fore. So, I, you know, I, I do wonder whether the Barstool um, attitude will have a short shelf life because it will be seen as too laddish in a world where um, women's sport is becoming more and more popular. You know, and I, I watched the final round of the, of the Women's Open uh, from Carnoustie uh, yesterday. It was, you know, it's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't seem to lend itself to 
the barstool ethos. So I, I, I think barstool has been great for golf, but I wonder how the barstool attitude, how long a shelf life that has in the world we live in. Mm. You see, this is where I think I take a slightly different uh, stance. You talk about laddish and it being always about guys. You know, I, I think it's more about connection. You know, um, I, I'll I'll talk a little bit about my old life in the music industry when we when we had a product called Spice Girls, um, Space Ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you pronounce Spice Girls <laughs> with a Scottish accent. Um, you know that that was that was about connection. Every single girl in the world could identify with, with one of those five. You know, uh, and I would suggest that Barstool have brought the game, um, certainly golf, certainly golf, because they're doing Barstool classics. They're getting the, the normal normal golfer involved. And I think sport in, in many ways has been very elitist in us and them. And it's been, you know, one way transmission and it's been, you know, lie back and enjoy it. And that's not the world we live in today anymore. So I think it's, I, I see what you're saying, but I think it's slightly narrow, na narrow thinking to believe that this is just about um, going for the, the, the loaded uh, um, nuts audience that you're referring to. I actually do believe that they have found a connection with sports that were struggling on the road to marginality, um, certainly with the new audiences. No, I'm not disagreeing with you, Rog. I'm just wondering out loud, really, if if Barstool will have to change its its kind of edge. Because, look, Riggs, those guys, they're all very, very blokey, right? They just are. There's mm -hmm. no way you can, you can tell me that they are deliberately pandering to a unisex audience. They're not. They're absolutely not. And so I just, I just wonder, I'm not saying they're not doing great things for the sport. I'm not saying they're doing great things for the audience and connecting and all that stuff. I just wonder if there is a shelf life to how they do this and they have to, they're going to have to um, change before yeah, they'll not evolve. very long. Yeah. Or if they don't evolve, do they lose their audience? I, I, I don't know. It, it, it mm. remains to be seen, but I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about it. But remember, Barstool CEO is a, is a woman. Um, she she is a very very capable businesswoman as we've seen in the last two years. Sure, um, they will get the female audience. You know they will adapt and they will change the product to do that. If you think about boxing now, which was the most <laughs> non-female sport you can imagine, now my own daughter's talking about you know Jake Paul's hit list. You know he put out a tweet where he said you know here are the next ten fighters I'm going to fight, and you know she's the one that's telling me about that. You know, so um, I think the influencer celebrity, Barstool's a player in this. It's not the only. It's not the only player. You know, we had Nikita Bidarian on on the show. He's the manager of Jake Paul, and he was telling us a little bit that his fight's coming up at the end of the month. I I, I just believe that uh, this is how you get modern audiences. You know, you have to produce content that is working you know i think sean's got a clip that you know we've got mike tyson again in boxing you know uh, this is a clip that went viral over the week uh, it's one of one of the things i wanted to to bring up tonight this boy here is the son of a great great fighter arturo gatti who um famous for the trilogy with wards a uh, hall of famer mm -hmm. um and and there's mike there you know um preparing him outstanding lateral movement devastating power 
you know, uh, you know, and, and this is the kind of shit that works, you know, and, and, and at the end of it, he says to him, you know, uh, I wish you could be living around here, son. Yeah, no, say so all this stuff is great, Rog. I, I, I don't disagree. And all the access that we as fans get to these these moments that you, you don't get to see and we haven't been able to see before kind of social media and live streaming, it's, it's fantastic. And it only ups the engagement. It only increases our access to the sport and, and strengthens our connection with that's what I'm saying. not just the sport, but individual fight. No, I, and I don't disagree with any of that. I, I think that's absolutely right. I say I'm just I'm just pondering whether you because you know it feels to me that golf in particular i don't know so much about boxing but golf in particular it feels and i may be wrong but it feels like the traditional male attitude to golf is very different to the female attitude to golf and, I, and I, i'm happy really? to be corrected if I've, that's what it feels like to me but I, I don't know and i just wonder whether what i see as a very laddish approach to all this stuff uh plays to a modern audience and i don't know the answer and and i'll, I'll be curious to see how it plays I, out I, but, um, yeah it would be, no, it'd be I, really interesting it i think it's great yeah i yeah, mean there was another great. one I, I don't you know just uh, briefly talking about you know the return of cm punk in, in wrestling um same thing you know not a sport super super uh, impressive um rights rights uh, holder you know all of these things are for me, and and I think I've been consistent in this over two or three years, point to a completely changing environment for the sports industry. And I still think, you know, when you look again at those two on the Golf Channel talking about rigs, I still think it's gone over most people's head, Grant. And um, I, you get, I, I just I just wonder how it's all going to play out. You know, um, so, you know, that's that was my, I think I'm going to call it my goal this week because... You know, your, your newsletter really got me thinking about society and does it ultimately always, whether it's mice or whether it's men, end up with an influencer type, uh, you know, um, an age of illusion, of nothingness, of of just yeah. fluff, you know, um, and, and maybe that's what we're living. I tend to look at it more optimistically. I think that they have tuned into a modern generation and they're using the techniques of that modern generation to reignite sports that I think were going down a, a dark tunnel. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Rog, because that you know the the point about that influencer stage is that it tends to happen near the decline of exactly. a society, right? And and from there it happens that things tend to spiral rather quickly. So you know, I, I wonder because that, you know the CM Punk video, and I don't know if we have, I think we have the video of CM Punk being introduced. If you look at the crowd at that event and you see just how crazy they're going right you can see this here i mean it's just this is this is the coliseum right rose this is bread and circuses this is everybody getting fired up and chanting and distracted and shouting and screaming at a guy coming on in a pair of jeans and a pair of sneakers and you know looking around with the attitude and the whole thing um you know this is are you not entertained right from gladiator this or, is or rollerball remember crowd, the film rollerball there. So it's exactly um, the same and it tends to happen at the decline it tends to happen when style rules over substance but it doesn't tend to last very long before people realize that that you know that there's no substance there and so you know if you, if you look at the age of the influencer which has been with us for quite some time now i would argue that perhaps we are nearer the end of the age of the influencer than we are the beginning so i you know i don't know i'm curious to see how all this plays out but I don't think it's necessarily a one-way trajectory that this is going to carry on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I completely agree. I suspect agree. 
I suspect we're closer to the apex of that particular curve than we are the trough, but it remains to be seen. But you see, this is this is always my kind of like life philosophy in general, really, you know, don't, don't deal with the world the way that you, you would like it to be, or maybe you think it will return to be, but you have to deal with it the way it, the way it is today. You know, and I think the biggest uh, challenge for the sports industry is to say, how much are we going to follow this? You know, how much are we really going to um, embrace challenger formats embrace celebrity, um, embrace TikTok type co uh, content, um, appeal to Gen Z. I tend to think you've got to do that. Um, I always come back to the idea about where do you find the balance, but I just feel the industry is like those two guys in that studio resisting this and then just pondering to each other, why Why does Phil speak to Riggs? Never spoke to us like that. You know, you can almost hear right. them saying it, you know? And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, mate, anyway, it was a great newsletter. Um, uh, honestly, you know, if you're not already a subscriber, uh, have a think about subscribing to Grant's newsletter. Um, and tell me, Grant, what have you got this week? Uh, goal or own goal? Well, I've got, I've got a fabulous goal, which just, I mean, talk about heartwarming. And this was, the, um, this was Maria Magdalena Andrzejczyk, the uh, Polish javelin thrower who won the silver yes. medal at the at the Olympics and then auctioned off that medal to try and pay for an eight-month-old baby's heart surgery. And um, the, the, the winner of the auction, the auction was, a, was a Polish convenience store called Zabka, who paid 125,000, I think it was, for the, for the gold medal uh, and then told her she could keep the medal. And, and I think that was just you know, an absolutely wonderful gesture, both on her part um, to do that in the first place and then on the part of Zabka to, to, to pay that money and then let her keep the medal. I just thought, you know, it just shows you the things that sport can do and the way that sport can bring people together and, and, and create emotion around things that, that other things just, just struggle miserably to do. I, I just thought that was a wonderful story all around. No, no, no doubt, no doubt. You know, you, you, you just... You, you think of these things and you see everything else that's going on in the world just now. And the, the, it makes you optimistic, doesn't it? When you see people like this, you know, that they, first of all, they're great achievers. They can get to the highest levels and in the Olympics and, and, and their chosen discipline. But at the end of the day, they'll do anything for their children, obviously. And, you know, um, it's, uh, well, yeah, Roger, there, there and, the, and the other part, the, the other part of it that I thought there was, was so great was it, it, it put sport in its proper perspective, right? It, it, she's there, she's competing at the highest level, she wins the silver, which is the pinnacle of any career. But at the end of the day, that silver medal, which from what I know from every other Olympian, is going to be sitting in a box somewhere. Um, you know, it put the sport in perspective. Yes, I won the silver medal, I'll always have won that silver medal. But if this, if this game that I'm playing can help save a child's life, then how wonderful to be able to use that. Uh, you can't take the memory away from me, but I can use it to, to save an eight-month-old child's life. It's just fantastic. Well, maybe she could have um, created an NFT of it and, and got both 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 ways, sold it twice. Yeah, possibly, possibly. <laughs> let's let's save that discussion for another day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was. Um, it's it's interesting to think about um, the old days. You know, when footballers didn't get as much money as they get today, how many of them ended up selling their medals. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, and World Cup winner medals and all kinds of things, right? Just like tragic stuff, you know, because yeah. younger younger people won't understand this now. But you know, uh, players didn't get an awful lot of money, maybe a wee bit more than a normal bloke, but not not too much more. 
they they got a testimonial that kind of like gave them the money for them to buy a pub because it was normally always a pub and then they became yep. a um a publican and they they led pretty normal lives and then when they maybe needed their daughter to get married they sold their medals tragic in some ways that was when you that think was about the circle of life the original that was circle the circle of life, of li- that was the circle of life. Uh, and you know that's one of the things that um i was going to bring up later uh the complete flip side of that grant you know we we saw messi and i don't think we're going to go in deeply into messi everybody's covered it to death but barcelona bust because it paid too much in wages so many other clubs similarly certainly in southern europe and you're getting a lot of people now coming out with um statements about salary caps which you know it's not new you know we mentioned it you know uefa's tried ffp and many people have talked about salary caps and i just always got to thinking a little bit differently i was thinking i was thinking this i was thinking um you know if everybody manages to do it, let's assume they can get past the politics and the the competition amongst each other and they actually get a salary cap going the way they've got in American sports. In today's world where, you know, you've had the NCAA, this uh, super, Supreme Court thing, in today's world, is a salary cap ever going to hold legally? Is what I'm thinking. You know, because you're basically saying something along the lines of, Let's get together, uh, owners, to limit the economic rent that the talent can achieve from their efforts so that we can continue to make a profit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, First of all, I think that legally may be problematic uh, going into the world we're going into. But secondly, it leaves a massive door open because let's say you set uh, a salary cap whatever it is, 60%, whatever form you want to do, but you've put a number on it. You say, we need to keep marginality of 40% here. Um, I am somebody who comes along and says, well, 40% seems a lot. Um, I go to the top players and I say, look, you know, uh, I've got two things for you. First of all, I'm going to give you more of the share of the spoils. I'm going to take less at the center. I won't take 40%, I'll take 20. Or guess what? I'm going to pay you an equity. Uh, yeah. You know, Michael Morris was saying that during the week uh, about, you know, why in, in, in industries, creative industries where it's so dependent on humans, why um, are um, football clubs, sport clubs, for, sport franchises not offering equity to um, to the players? And, and, and this is my thought on this. I believe that if you try and guarantee profitability for the franchise owners, for big capital, if you want, for the the suits, if if you prefer, I think somebody smart is going to go to the providers of talent and say, I can get you a better deal. You don't need them. We can create our own tournaments. So whilst I've always been a fan of salary caps, the more and more I think about it, I think it's not going to work. And I think we need to get, as Michael Moritz says, Sir Michael Moritz of Sequoia, we need to start thinking more laterally about how we reward the, the creators of the talent. Yeah, I mean, look, giving giving players an equity share is a very sensible way to do it, Roger. But you know, in the article, which um, uh, hopefully people haven't read it, they'll have a chance to read it because it's, it's a really, really important article, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, he talks about if, if they'd given Messi, uh, instead, of, instead of raising a whole lot of debt, to fund the wages of the Messi's and the Suarez's of the world, um, they'd have given them equity, which they were they had to sell if they left the club. You know, the performance would have been just as good, and they end up with the equity back. 
Um, the player makes a lot of money. It's just a much more sensible way of conducting business. But, you know, I wonder, Roger, you now that salary cap idea, I get what you're saying, um, but I suspect it has a fairly decent shelf life before it starts getting challenged. I mean, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe people challenge it immediately. But I think there's enough of precedent in other sports that you can say, well, we're, we're actually putting a cap on what the league's spending. You pay your players what you want, but you've still got to balance the books. So I, I'm sure there will be arguments there and it, it, it wouldn't get challenged immediately. So I, I think it definitely has a shelf life. And look, I mean, I think if the, if the clubs, if it works out well for the clubs, they're going to defend it tooth and nail. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I agree with you, and I have done for a long time, that it will happen at some point. But uh, um, I, I don't think it'll be as short-lived as perhaps you suspect it might. Well, be. I mean, look at the look at the what would everybody say would be the the, the 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 newest format that's been most successful in the last couple of decades? It's the UFC. We heard Nakiza uh, talk about how that was set up. UFC notoriously is a, a low payer. Um, they don't pay their fighters that well. Um, and now you've got a challenger to them, the the PFL, I think it's called the Professional Fighters League, that guess what, um, seems to pay them a wee bit more. So so what I'm saying is, in a world of new formats and, and, and loads of capital to finance new formats, I am suggesting in a very economic way that the fruits of this sector are going to go much more to the talent than to the owners of franchises and to the governing bodies and the international federations. And it won't just be all talent. We said this before, it's going to polarise between the journeymen and the superstars. I know you don't like this. We had this discussion about golf and, and all of that. But sadly, you know, it's just it's the way the market works. The, the value flows to who generates it. And, and the more and more you try and artificially game that to give somebody more of the economic rent than, than than it would suggest i think you're going to get into a lot of trouble in, in this world of 2021 yeah you may be right Rush. you may be right we'll see but i I, th- look, I think i think the money should flow to the to the creative talent but uh the gulf between the creative talent and the journeyman is is probably the tricky part to try and figure out you know it's how do you bridge that with the amount of money that's involved here how do you bridge the gap because you know that the starting point is not going to be the journeyman salary, right? Everything's going to be based off the superstar salary. That's where they're going to start. It's, well, Messi's used to getting paid three million quid a week or whatever it is, so we have to pay him that. Then, obviously, to make it all balanced, you're going to have to really, really cut the rates as you get down to the journeyman players rather than saying, well, the average player's going to earn this, so Messi can earn two times that because it will be a fraction of what he's earning now. So it's going to be Mm. an interesting problem for them to solve out. I I don't know how they do it. Um, All right, listen... uh, Another good for me this week was uh, a documentary I watched on Netflix. In fact, two of them. The first two in a series called Untold. Oh yes. And the first one was the, the first one was uh, called Malice at the Palace, and it was a, a documentary all about the um, the brawl between the Indiana Pacers um, and the and the fans of the Detroit Pistons. And I think we've got the the, the intro clip here. Yeah? Broke out between the Pacer team and the fans in the stand. It was like a powder keg. From the corner of my eye, I see it coming. Some people have control. I don't. Attention's in the stands. They want to blame us. These guys are thugs. 
Fans are such an emotional investment. There is a darkness there. The NBA was worried about their perception. It cost all of us everything. The palace had a VHS tape for each and every camera. I want the story out there. Go frame by frame. If you actually knew what happened, you wouldn't even be asking questions. Yeah, uh, amazing clip, but um, it, it was a, it was a fantastic documentary. And when you when you look at the bar that's been set by the Last Dance, which we've rhapsodized about on this show many many times, yeah, you know, this was another example of just how compelling sporting stories can be. You know, I, I remember this game, I remember this incident very very well, and um, and I also remember remembered the coverage of it. But you know, history fades your memory on certain parts of it, but it really was couched in terms of the players were thugs. David Stern came out afterwards who you know, ruled the league with an iron fist and, and the suspensions he put on the Indiana Pacers decimated them and probably yeah. cost them uh, what I feel would have been a very likely NBA championship for, for Reggie Miller and, and the rest of the team. Um, but when you, when you watch this documentary and you, and you finally, you know, 15, 16, 17 years after the event, get a chance to hear the player's side of the story and see the evidence really played out not in a 30-second soundbite on a, on a, on a sports centre, um, you realise just how badly screwed the players were over this. I mean, this was, this was something that should never have been allowed to happen. It was, it was started by the fans. Um, yes, Ron Artest should never have gone into the stands. But, you know, we forget. You're, you're, you're laying there and you're laying on the scorer's table and you're, you're on the court, right? You're in the safety zone and... Tempers are heated and there was plenty of backstory between the two teams and, and suddenly you get hit. You see a guy throw a full thing of beer at you and it hits you on the head. Um, these are human beings and there's only so much provocation you can take. You know, after that, there were fans coming onto the floor and squaring up to these to the players. And, you know, again, Ron Artest defended himself, punched the guy out who, who came up to the, the fan in the crowd. And it was interesting, you know, the documentary had the fan. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it took me back to Matthew, whatever his name is, the fan that swore at Cantona, you know, when he went into the stands at Crystal Palace all those years ago, Rod, you know, and, I, and I'll never forget seeing that on the news and seeing Cantona's kung fu kick into the into the stands. And, and we all saw, you know, uh, the fan running down the stairs to get to the front as Cantona had been sent off, was walking off behind the goal and give him the old Gareth Hunt Nescafe hand signal. And, um, I, you know, I'll never forget the next morning the son interviewed this guy and he claimed that what he had said was off you go Cantona. It's an early bath for you. <laughs> right. When anyone who had uh, even kind of rudimentary lip reading skills could see that wasn't remotely what he said, but um, you know, you don't go into the crowd. It, that, that's, that's fair enough. But by the same token, the crowd aren't allowed onto the court to, to threaten you physically. Well, yeah. Um, and so watching this watching this documentary, um, I, I thought the, the, the Pacers players, particularly Jermaine O'Neal, who yeah. is a kid who came straight out of high school into the NBA. Um, so he was a very young man when all this was going on. Uh, you know, what a thoughtful, considered yeah. young man he's turned into. You know, Reggie Miller, who was in a suit at the time, wasn't in the game, um, was trying to break fights up. And then, you know, um, uh, Steve, uh, Steve Jackson and... Yeah. Um, and Ron Artest, later named Meta World Peace, which is another story. But it was a, another fantastic a documentary story. that showed you showed you another side to some really unsettling events. But but what I came away with, Rog, was how unsettling the commentary was around it afterwards. 
and the way it was handled by Stern particularly was uh, we will throw the players under the bus here because we need to save the league. We're going to throw them under the bus. We're going to punish the players. We're going to make it all about them. We're going to villainize them as thugs. Um, and this documentary told a very, very different story. Grant, you know, uh, like you say, uh, I, I didn't live that time the way you did. You, I think you were in the States and um, I just consumed that documentary just in an hour. It went, it went in five minutes. Uh, but there's there's two or three things that, that, that struck me about this. Um, first of all is like somebody like our test, you know, like, you know, psycho. <laughs> they talk about mental health these days. Bloody hell. Yeah. You know, um, but a hell of a player, Rog. Hell he was of a player. Incredibly talented player. Hell of People a player, but he was, he was right on the edge. Um, the, 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 the other thing I would say that, you know, I just kind of like noted down things there. Like you, um, Reggie Miller is one hell of an impressive individual. You know, um, the way he talked on that in inter the interviews and, you know, man, oh man, some people are really, really impressive. Um, the other thing that I, I did think about was Stern, you know, and the Iron Fist. And, you know, you may have an opinion on this, but coming back to MJ and, you know, taking his year out to play baseball, uh, the rumours were that, you know, Stern made him do that because he was in the middle of the gambling yeah. shit, you know. The gambling scene, yeah. Um, you know, and, 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 and the, but the main thing, the main thing that came out of this for me, and, and you know, I'm, I, I get become very unpopular when I take this line because it's not the line that most people are comfortable with. Um, what clearly came out for me in that documentary was one of the quotes later in the documentary where they said, um, the fans, uh, there's a darkness about that quote unquote. And, you know, um, I I can refer to even last night with uh, Nice and Olympic Marseille, almost an mm -hmm. identical incident. You know, uh, yeah. how many, we're all football fans, we're all been in crowds where, you know, um, you, you hear the guy next to you on a player's back for 90 minutes, all kinds of dogs abuse. And if he turns around and gives you the V or flips you the bird, these fans go batshit crazy. You know, they believe yep. it is a one-way street. Um, and, and, you know, this documentary was basically about, you know, who started this um, was the guy that threw the bottle um, from the stands, yeah. just like last night. And, you know, uh, same thing happened last night. And, and you know, uh, I am unpopular about this because I, I genuinely believe that the word darkness is the right, is the right word. My, my own experience about this um, back in 1999, if I've told you this before, forgive me, um, because it just rang so true, this documentary for me. They said it was electric that night. You felt there was something strange. Uh, they also said they'd been drinking all the time because I think the next day was a, was a, was not a work day. It was the same for the Celtic Rangers game in May the 2nd, 1999. Um, it was it was a, a late kickoff. Um, it was a bank holiday the next day. Everybody was tanked up. Um, it was the... That's what happened there. Hugh Dallas got hit with a coin. What happened was Rangers could win the league in Celtic's ground. Um, Hugh Dallas sent a Celtic player off early. He gave Rangers a penalty and the Celtic fans went berserk. They hit the, the, the uh, Dallas who went down. I'm not making a statement about whether he refereed well or not. That's not the point. The point I'm making was I was the chief executive of the Scottish Premier League. I was in the director's box. I had... Um, had the usual hospitality with most of the people around me in those seats 
an hour before the game, chatty, chatty, businessman, businessman, all this kind of stuff. I can tell you, Grant, they were screaming in my face. Not because it was me that had sent them off or had given a penalty. It was my fault because the kickoff was late. It was my fault because next day um, they didn't have to go to work and everybody was tanked up. And, 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 and you know, it was, it, it was one of the... the, 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 the I wouldn't say it was scary because you get into a moment where it just all seems a little bit like it's that scene in Saving Private Ryan where it's all just buzzing your ears at the start. And then before I know it, yeah. um, a, a policeman has got me by arm and saying, Mr. Mitchell, please accompany me away from the, the stands because I was seen as a, a, a source of violence. So what, what, what I'm saying, Grant, is that fans, whether it's Malice in the Palace, Olympic Lyonnais, um, Olympic Marseille um, and Nice, Celtic, or, you know, the constant abuse that, that you see week in, week out. You know, we had, um, you know, the, the I think um, Billy Gilmore's gone from Chelsea to, to Norwich and he got a hell of a time. I think the phrase that is used these days is Chelsea rent boy. I'm not sure what the backstory is there. There's something about that. Um, Chaka, the, the Arsenal player, um, all these death threats, all these things, um, I think there was even a Celtic player this week, that, a Japanese player that um, just because yeah, he's, he, 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 he got the usual, the usual insults and, and, and gestures there. When are we going to start saying, but really mean it rather than just, you know, give the full outrage until it passes? When are we going to start saying that sporting fans, a lot of them are really, really undesirables? And it will never change. And for me, Malice in the Palace was about realising that three guys particularly, a franchise that deserved to win, and especially Reggie Miller, were robbed because some drunken lout fan thought it was within his entitlement to throw a bottle. When are we going to start well, saying yeah, that okay, that's but, the case? All right. No, look, I, 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 bravo. I don't disagree with any of that. But, but let me ask you, Roger, how did you... Handle it. And with, as context, let's talk about what David Stern did, right? David Stern um, didn't do anything to the fans, didn't, didn't empty the arenas for 10 games. You know, there was no, you're playing behind closed doors. There was none of that. The players were suspended. Um, Ron Artest was out for the rest of the season. Jermaine O'Neill, Stephen Jackson had 20, 30 game suspensions, which is, you know, half, half the season in, in one of their cases, more or less at that time. These were incredibly harsh penalties on the players. And so, you know, it reinforced that what, what you said there about the problem being that this is not a one-way street, but it's treated as a one-way street. So with that as context, how did you handle the, the, the fallout from the, Scotland, from the Celtic Rangers game? Well, f first of all, let's remember Cantona was also hammered. So I think there is a difference when you go into the crowd. Um, whether that's right or wrong, um, that didn't happen at the Celtic game. The crowd invaded the park and attacked the referee. And that's happened quite regularly. Certainly in Scotland, it's happened quite regularly. What, what happened in the aftermath there was um, very, very interesting. The media the next day um, came after us, came after the league saying um, we had taken blood money for uh, taking a TV contract that made us play our live game uh, at six o'clock on a Sunday night. Um, and that would never happen again. And um, there was two or three days where the whole ecosystem of Scottish football was 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 at risk because everything was based on the Sky contract, which demanded that kickoff time. 
contractually. So if we couldn't do that, uh, the contract was null and void, and that meant every club in the league was bust overnight. Um, secondly, and these are the crucial things, the police, there's an organisation called ACPOS, which are the basically the match commanders get together, uh, Association of Chief Police Officers, something like that's called, who um, had warned the Scottish Premier League before my time that the six o'clock on a Sunday kickoff was wrong. And um, that something like this would happen because people would be drinking all day. They were proved 100% right. And they summoned me to their organisation. And I had to walk in in front of about 30 police officers of certain seniority. Um, and they were full of told you so faces. And I had to talk myself out of that. And thirdly, the politicians came up with, oh, we must have an inquiry, um, which we we did. What ultimately happened? How did we get out of this fix? Um, it, it was it had to be negotiated on three or four corners. First one was with um, the dearly departed Vic Wakeling at Sky, who called me immediately and said, Roger, we've got a problem. He could have said he, the contract's over because he knew that we couldn't play anymore at that time. He said, look, um, we'll have to find a solution here. Um, you go to the police officers, you work out the fixtures that they will not have because they're high risk on a Sunday evening and we will not play them on a Sunday evening. We'll find another slot for them. That was the great uh, wisdom of Mr. Vic Wakeling who saved, who saved all of that. I went to the, the police that day and I had something in my pocket from, from, from Vic and I said, look guys, I'm not here to apologize. I'm not here to say, I'm sorry. I'm here to give you a solution because uh, you know, the importance of football to, to society in Scotland. And um, if you say we can't play it, frankly, it's going to be your door. You know, when you're in a corner, you've got to fight back. So I said, look, we, we all need a compromise here. So let's come up with a list of uh, high risk, medium risk and low risk games. High risk will never be played on a Sunday at six o'clock, et cetera, et cetera. We'll come up with a protocol uh, we'll sell it to the media. Um, and that worked. Then we had to have the inquiry where um, we could not get Celtic Football Club for lack of stewarding, which was a case in Malice in the Palace. Uh, because actually they had done nothing wrong with lack of um, um, yeah. stewarding. But everybody demanded that Celtic Football Club were punished for that day. It's just the real politique of, of football. And there was a QC that, that headed the inquiry. I sat on it, as did a couple of other members of my board. And um, frankly, you know, whilst nobody said it openly, more or less it was, you know, we can't let them off here, even if it looks as if they've done nothing wrong. Uh, one of the things that you have to do when you've uh, got a high-risk football match is the police officer will come into the dressing room and ask the coaches to tell the players to be on their best behaviour. These things happen. I don't know if they still do. They did in my day. And we asked that the Celtic coaching staff had they... He did the, the, the match commander's um, uh, warning and said to the players to keep a lid on it and it came out under um, testimony that they hadn't really done that properly. So we had enough to give them a slap in the wrist and they got a, a nominal fine. Um, but, you know, that's that, that's how you have to deal with these things. But the, the point I'm, I'm saying is, in certain moments, the guy in the documentary called it a darkness. Fans, we have to accept this, they are not rational. And if they ever did a drink, no. and it is a highly charged uh, fixture, as as that one was in Malice in the Palace, it's going to kick off. 
you know, and, and you're no longer in the world of the lovely little videos of the father taking the son up the steps of Goodison Park for the first right. time. Do you know what I mean? And and I yeah. feel... No, it's so true. I feel that we give fans an easy ride because we all want to believe it's the nice side of the story. I know from the scars on my back and from seeing a, a thing like Malice in the Palace that at best it's a 50-50 whether you're dealing with the darkness or the light. Yeah, no, no, well said. And you've been you've been very vocal on this for for as long as we've been doing this podcast about you know the, the fans and the and the reality of it. Which you're right, Roger. People don't like to talk about because it's not inclusive, <laughs> but it's but it's the reality. And and I think you're right. The sooner we we admit what we're facing here, in, in many instances, then you can perhaps find a way to deal with it. But until you do that, until you assume that you've got a normal slice of representative society here. You're just not going to be able to do it unless you unless you unless you make some some decisions which are not in keeping with the all inclusive society that everyone is intent on building today. None. It's the complete opposite. You know, um, just before we came on air, Sean, the producer, was telling us that he 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 took in. I think it was Leeds um, Everton Everton at yeah. the weekend, and you know. Uh, he was saying that the fans were, you know, at each other the whole game and they were almost not attentive to the field at all. You know, um, football fans, a lot of them go there merely to abuse. And and, and and we do not want to recognise that. And then somebody says something high profile and now you get social media, it's all over and we get all these hand wringing for a couple of days and we brush it under the carpet Nobody wants to grasp the fact that we are dealing with a highly volatile, irrational, in many cases, underclass. And it, sometimes it comes out. I saw it firsthand. I will never forget the events of May 2nd, 1999. I think it made me a wiser person. It made me certainly appreciate the role of, of match commanders and the police. It made me appreciate the role of somebody like a, a Vic Wakeling that can look at all these things with a, a, a wisdom of experience that you, you get through it. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I just wish we would be honest about this because it isn't going to go away. Well, you know, this is why you were such an inspired choice for chief executive of the SPL, because you know, you're someone that both sides can despise. So that's, that's right. Uh... Everybody. <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> so what else you got for me this week, mate? Well, on, an, on a lighter note, you know, we've all got our favourite films, haven't we? And um, uh, one of my favourites certainly is Field of Dreams. Um, ah, yes. And, I know and, you're going with this. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, and um, you had a game, a proper baseball game that was set in a field that was the replica of the the Field of Dreams, uh, and this is a proper game yeah, sanctioned by MLB, the MLB. Yeah. You know, and and you know that film there, you know that that that's one of the lines, that's one of the big lines, the the the, the, the line that I think, and 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 in the last fifteen minutes, I've come across as this cynical, horrible person that has has no romanticism at all. The line that gets me every time in that film is that, you know, when he's speaking to his, his dad, who is a young yeah. man, and, and they both know, but they don't say it. And he's walking away and he's walking away, he says, Dad, you want to have a catch? Yeah, yeah. I know that I, I defy any father alive not to break down at that moment. Defy yeah. it. Yeah. And, 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 you know, for, for MLB and they, they get a hard time, you know, their age demographic is getting older and everybody says, you know, it's no longer America's pastime. It's no longer, you know, the, the role it had. Joe DiMaggio, where have you gone? Uh, Babe Ruth, nobody remembers. You know, the curse of the bum. It's a great sport that seems to be dying. And, you know, they've had the balls, MLB, to come up with something like this. 
you know, and, and, and huge success, huge success, so much so that everybody says, yeah, but is it replicable? You know, in, in our world, you know, people would say, but yeah, is it scalable? You know, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, I think I saw a couple of tweets, um, if, the, if you got them, Sean, you know, like what other rights holders could do something like this? Um, because, again, it's going beyond the game, going beyond the traditional thing. You know, this is for the, the NFL. Where could they replicate something like that? Um, I think this is what sport is tasked to come up with. You've got to think lateral. You've got to think of touch points that go beyond just asking fans to turn up for 90 minutes, watch a game, go home. It's the entertainment business, and you've got to give them a little bit of entertainment. But that was certainly, you know, my goal of the week to see Kevin Costner there. And of course, that film isn't just about baseball. There's the no. role of um, there's a there's a role of the the the, the 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 doctor who you know has the choice whether he steps beyond the line or not. It's just a beautiful film, and to see that happen was just you know certainly my goal of the week. Yeah, no, do you know it's funny. That Rog to me was everything that all the the gimmicky stuff could be. All the gimmicky stuff they throw in sport. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. No, I mean, yeah, of course. Because look, yeah, is it cheesy? Yeah, I guess. But it's not about the person. It's about the game, right? It's not about one player. It's not. A, it wasn't about Aaron Judge, even though you see him there coming out onto the onto the field. It's not about him. This is about. The game, the history of the game, the resonance of the game with the average American, and and taking taking something like that, and and finding a way to drill the game itself down to its emotions without saying, you know, come and cheer for this guy, come and cheer for that guy. That I think is something that sport could learn an awful lot from. You know, there, mm-hmm. and every every sport has these stories. Um, you know, perhaps none more so than baseball. I mean, there there is so much law in baseball and it's such a integral part of american society um that it's probably easier to do this with baseball than than just about any other sport but there are ways that the games themselves can be about the past can be about a way of connecting people with the tradition and the history of the game that strip out the players and in fact do the opposite make you realize that the players are just bit parts in the game at any point in its career. Yes, you know, even the Michael Jordans, the Kobe Bryants of the world, they're bit part actors and they come on uh, Shakespeare said. They play their part roles. They do. They do. And yes, well, see, this is where follow... you and I differ. No, but Rog, this you can follow you the lineage of these stars. You can follow the lineage of the stars through the game, right? I, I get that. You can go in your world from Di Stefano and Pushkas to Best to Maradona to Messi. You can follow that, right? And those great yeah. stars light up the game. Yeah. But Pushkas had his time on the stage and, you know, left the stage, as did Di Stefano, as did Best, as did Cruyff, as did Maradona, and as soon will Messi. The game goes on. And while these players are fantastic at the time, if you can create something gimmicky that's about the game, I just think that's a wonderful thing to do. And it will it will connect not just with the fans of one particular player. And if, if it happens to be Aaron Judge of the Yankees, you know, most Americans hate the Yankees. So, mm-hmm. you, you know, you, this is about the game. And I think the more ways people can come up with to find ways to connect people back with the history and traditions of the game, whether it be baseball, football, American football, whatever it might be, is just, I think that's that's what people should be Grant, spending their time trying to do. I, I know. 
I, I know, and this is the, we, we always come back to I, this. Roger, I can, the, the, I the, can the, smell the pity in your voice. It's fantastic. No, 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 it's, no there's no pity. It's, it's, it's a good, it's a good, um, I'd like to make a point that, that says why that Fuel Rouge isn't going to last. You talk about, you know, players and most of them, the Stefano Puska's best, um, even in, up in the 90s, a Shearer or, 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 or a Lineker before Bosman, they were without doubt basically chattels without any freedom of contract. They had no power to go beyond the game. The game owned them. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is that uh, as the law and technology has moved on, they are now much more powerful than the game. And that is the question for sport. What is the role for the game in the age of the celebrity athlete? And I think there is a balance it won't be achieved by people sticking their heels in and saying this isn't on. But we need to move with the times. We need to recognise that Messi is not like any other player in his team. Uh, and, 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 and you know, that's where I think you and I differ. Uh, we enjoyed a game where the football players, as I said, they got nothing out of it. They got a testimonial, they got a pub. Um, now we've maybe gone the other direction, but that's the way markets work. Um, I, I, but I do take your point and I think that's why I was trying to say it what is the next thing you can do like something like you know that field of dreams thing because it's not easy to pull those off you know you can maybe get one or two of them away before everybody gets fed up or you're, you 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 can run out of ideas or steam but um, I just love that I just love to see them coming out of the, the cornfields yeah you know look the, the NHL have their outdoor games every year right and that's that's a big deal. They still have these outdoor games every year, and it's a big, big draw. The NFL started doing it by moving games to London and other parts of the world, and, and those games are all big games. So you can take the game to new places and come up with, with, with new ways to showcase the game, and I don't think they will get old. You know, that, that game was postponed from last year, that, um, that Field of Dreams game. Um, there's no way they're not doing it again next year, Rog. And, and maybe they have mm -hmm. different teams playing, but I think that game will be around for a little while because it's it's so evocative and, and it's such a great marketing effort for baseball. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I watched it and I felt it wasn't about the players. You know, the whole, the whole game was about the setting and about the emotions of connecting the game. It was a bigger star than the players. Cos yeah. Costner trumped them. That's, no, that's, that's, yeah, I, would, I would say that makes my point. Yeah, may, look, maybe so, maybe so. But once Costa threw out the first pitch and then left, um, it still wasn't about the players, right? It, it was it was you were watching the players as if they were in a movie and the movie was what was important, not the players. And mm -hmm. so I think it is possible to do that. I think it is possible to, to, to find ways of celebrating the game instead of the individual. Um, and you know, hopefully, hopefully we we, we do see more of this, Roger, because I just think it would be, I think it would be a great leveler for the fans to to reconnect with the game and and not find themselves just bombarded with with you know opportunities Celebrity. to engage with a certain player. You know, I just I just think it's such a shame that the world's gone that way. Uh, yeah, that that kind of like closes the circle because that's where we started with with mice and men. But, but one thing I wanted to ask you, I've never asked you this on or off air. You know, at some point in your life, you went to America and you lived in America. Um, a lot of the kind of like, you know, um, 
one guy wins, the other schmuck loses, attitude of America, you know, ego me, loser you, you have none of that, Grant, you have none of that. How did you, how did you find your time in America, both in general and in watching American sports? Uh, I loved it. I mean, look, I, I was a fan of American sports long before I went to America. You know, I was, I was, I could only watch American sports when I lived in Japan back in the 80s. Um, so it was all I watched, college basketball, college football, the odd NBA game. Um, so I was a big fan of American sports long before I went over there. And so when I got there, it was just a chance to see it more often and see it live and 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 kind of learn more about it and the fans. I mean, I, I missed the... The one thing that I, that I struggled with in, in any American stadium, unless it was a local rivalry game like Yankees versus Mets or the Jets Giants or whatever it may be, you'd never had that away crowd, Rog. It was always, you know, the baseball is 162 games a year. Um, so you've got 81 home games a year from teams playing sometimes from the opposite coast on a Wednesday afternoon. So you don't, you get a few local people who are displaced from Anaheim sitting in, in the stands yeah. at Yankee Stadium, but you never got that atmosphere. So I never got the atmosphere in the stadiums that I got in the UK with with you know an Arsenal Man United game or a Liverpool Chelsea game. You don't get that atmosphere, so that was definitely missing. But um, but I, I I loved I loved my time in America. I, I loved the sport I got to watch over there and seeing those great athletes up close. Um, nothing but fantastically fond memories of all of it. Fantastic. Fantastic. There you go. Well, we've um, we've managed to somehow accidentally fall over backwards to round this out at the perfect time, Rog. There's the, there's a minute left, and, and we must use that minute to to thank you all for for watching. Uh, we do appreciate that. Please, uh, if you don't follow us on Twitter, you should uh, try and do that. We're at Entertain R. That's the word A R E. We have to thank our sponsors, uh, Entourage Media, who've done once again a fantastic job, and our producer Sean, who's behind the scenes uh, pulling up all those clips and tweets. Uh, Sean, again, a fantastic job. Thank you very much. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you're not doing so already. You'll find me at TTMYGH. And you can follow myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Raj, yeah, see thanks, you next Graham. time, mate. Thanks for doing that. Take care. Bye. Bye.